Hello, everyone. My name is Lance. I'm one of the elders here at Pella. If you're new with us, welcome. Uh, if you see me up here, that's because it's that time of the year. You get one chance at this. That's great. No pressure. You also get the longer service, so I get it now. Yeah, yeah you get the unfiltered version, uh, which is great. Um, but if you're here and you're joining us, uh, welcome. Um, this is a great time for Sean to get some well-needed rest and relaxation while the rest of us get to come up here and share God's Word with you, so that's exciting. If you would, please turn with me to Daniel 3 as we continue our uh, study. Now, this chapter is a quite unique uh, chapter, ultimately, at the end of the day. It's in the book of Daniel, but there's no Daniel. So that's my luck, preaching the book of Daniel, but don't get to talk about him. But uh, that's, it's It's okay. Ultimately, at the end of the day, however we look at this, we have to realize that our God is supreme, He is sovereign, and this is about Him. So, this story is just one of a, a longer uh, narrative. Over the first six chapters, we see the story. They kind of link together. This story, like any great story, uh, has its beginning, middle, and end. Yay. But it's got its ups and downs. It has its heroes, its villains, it's got conflict, all the great things needed uh, for a great story. Most of you here would be familiar with this story if you were raised in the church, and even if you weren't, you probably know it as well. If you came to vacation Bible study you were, or school, you got to see the felt board, that was a good time. Or if you came to church maybe once or twice, you probably heard this. It's a great story and also relevant for us today. We won't be looking at it from any new spectacular angle or try to find some new hidden meaning. It's pretty pretty normal, clean cut. So uh, we will be breaking this into four scenes. Scene one, I've labeled tyranny, the perfect plan, verses one through seven. Scene two, the accusation, rules are meant to be broken, eight through 15. Scene three, the verdict is in, there will be penalty, 16 through 25. And then scene four, favor, a new decree, 26 through 30. That kind of gives us a trajectory as to where we're going. As you read this account, you'll quickly notice there's distinctions at each one of these points. In the opening scene, we see a typical day in a uh, king's life as he's deciding to do certain things, as any king would do. It moves into scene two, which we start to see the conflict arise, where between two and three is kind of the crest of the actual conflict. And then in scene three, we are kind of rolling our way out to a resolution and uh, in, in, in close out. So this is a very good story. Uh, let's go ahead and pray, and then we'll dig a little bit deeper into this. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this example and the story, Lord. I pray that we would uh, take it to heart and that we would follow the, the, the lead of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, Lord, in our lives today as it is very relevant. Uh, open our hearts to your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, before we get started, let's do a little review. Uh, a couple important details that we have from last week. Richard walked through uh, a dream that was given to Nebuchadnezzar, but he didn't know what that dream was. I have a dream, I don't know what it means. He then challenges his counsel and says, Can you tell me what my dream was and what it means? By the way, if you don't, you die. No pressure. So they kind of looked at each other like this is impossible. And then Daniel came in and said, give me some time. And then with his Lord and his God, he reveals this dream to him. And in that dream, it's a statue. And in the statue, there's the head of gold, which represents King Neb's kingdom. 
That seems great. He loves this. This is a good time. But then there's lesser kingdoms that come later on in life. And then ultimately, we get to this final kingdom that is made of stone, that is not made by hands, of man, and it's an eternal kingdom. I think he forgets about that one, but we're going to continue. That's where we ended up landing. We're not sure this King Neb really had an issue with certain things, but he really wanted to be known as the king of kings, the monarch. So, as anybody, this megalomaniac narcissist only sees what he wants to see. And then we move from there into the end of that chapter, but somehow he goes, wait a minute, your king, or your God, in verse 47, truly, your God is a God of God and of Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries. For you have been able to reveal this mystery. So at the end of the day, he goes, wait a minute, I don't like the fact that I can't be the full king. We're going to find that out. But I agree, this is a great God. Your God is a great God. So he's praising and worshiping him. So let's go ahead and move into scene one, tyranny, the perfect plan, and see where we are now with King Nebuchadnezzar. Tyranny, the perfect plan, verse one. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits and its breadth was six cubits. And he set it up in the plain of Dura in the providence of Babylon. Okay, hit the brakes. Let's stop right there. We end the chapter in chapter 2, just a couple verses back, with praising Yahweh. And then all of a sudden, here we are. We're putting up a statue. What happened? What happened between those verses and the white space and where we are now? We're not really sure. It's as if King Nebuchadnezzar thought, you know, my kingdom's going pretty good. Uh, Conquered these nations. Had a bad dream. Eh, my, my people figured it out, and then all of a sudden, I'm going to go ahead and throw up this statue. This statue is a little different than his dream. Let's look at the, look, look at the details of this. Ooh. <coughs> the towering statue was an astonishing height of 90 feet high. 90 feet high, 9 feet wide. Now, most of the engineers in the room are already going, hmm, think this through, calculate it. It doesn't make sense. This is a very tall narrow thing. If you figure it out, let me know. I'm not quite sure exactly how this thing would even stand. It's a very unusual size for a structure intended for public display. In this room, if you were to look at these uh, poles in here, they're about 11 to 12 feet high. If you were to take them and stack them on top of each other, you'd have to have at least eight of them to actually get to the size of this. It's like a nine-story building, and it's taller than the Sphinx. This is a large, shiny object. Against the backdrop of the desert landscape, this grand statue would have commanded attention. They would have noticed it. It's described as being an image of gold, so the whole thing gold, but the odds are it probably wasn't solid gold. That would have been too expensive and would have been too heavy to do. They did conquer a lot of kingdoms, but most likely this wasn't the case. The same image being plated with potentially gold and wood frame would have sat six miles, give or take, outside of Babylon. At that height, it would have been noticed probably around 15 miles away. So this was a big deal. This wasn't a small thing for them. And most likely, those in the area would have noticed some kind of construction going on. Archaeologists have discovered a platform that may have served, they think, in that area, which is why they think it's maybe six miles out, as the base for this. It's also an area, some would say, that could be also the 
where the Tower of Babel would have been as well. Verse 2. Then King Nebuchadnezzar set, then King Nebuchadnezzar sent to gather the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justice, the magistrates, and all of the officials of the providence to come to the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then the satraps, the prefects, the governors, and the counselors, the treasurers, the justice, the magistrates, and all of the officials of the providence gathered for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. So apparently he wants us to know that it's him, and he's the one that set it up. He's doing a good job. We're going to continue repeating that. As we read this, it becomes very clear that due to this repetitive list, there's something of importance here. The list of the individuals or these groups that came were leaders within his nation. These were the top officials. To give you an idea, it would be kind of like us going to the Burning Man event, but taking all of our politicians, taking all of our military, Navy SEALs, and then grabbing, while we're at it, for influence, our social media influencers, TikTokers, YouTubers, and Instagrammers. Get them all in one place, and then get them to come on board. So the plan is slowly materializing. Old Neb had a purpose behind his actions, unbeknownst to those that were invited. Nebuchadnezzar wanted to ensure that all his leaders were present for this great event, some considering this the greatest event in Babylon, Babylon history at the time. Those invited would have just thought this is another party for a big-time ruler. Verse 4, And the herald proclaimed aloud, You, oh, oh sorry, you are commanded, O peoples, nations, languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the trigon, the harp, the bagpipe, and every kind of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. Therefore, as soon as all the people heard the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the trigon, the harp, the bagpipe, and every kind of music, all peoples, nations, and languages fell down and worshipped the image that who? King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. At that moment, those individuals realized what was happening. You see, this wasn't just a dedication to this, or a dedication ceremony to this particular idol or statue. This was a worship ceremony. This changed everything. They probably looked at each other and thought, what is going on? Kind of looked at each other. Are you going to respond to this? You see, Neb wanted to be the king of kings and have the eternal kingdom that never fails. He wanted to be more than just the head of gold. He wanted the whole thing. To achieve this great kingdom, he needed unity among his subjects. So Neb set up his grand plan of unification around this golden image. Nebuchadnezzar ultimately was a genius in this. He, regarded, he looked and he noticed well, hey, we're going to have music. And not just any music, it's going to be an orchestra. He understood what music meant in worship. And he, he, he laid it out there just so he could yield a desirable response at the end of the day. And, you know, if that didn't work, well, there's always the alternative. You either worship by the music or you die. So, you know, we have to balance that out. A lot of... Uh, a lot of pressure there, too. Achieving this greatest kingdom, Nebuchadnezzar, the perfect politician, had to execute his perfect plan. 
The king needed all the people from all the nations he had conquered to unite under this new religion. He was cool that all the other nations had their own gods and their own religion, but to get everyone on the same page, he had to have them come, to, come together under this new one religion. It was either bow, serenade, bow, or death. Fear is a good motivator. Fear is a good motivator. I wish I had some great examples over the last couple of years of fear from a government and motivation. Okay. Don't stand here. Don't stand over there. Wear this. Don't do that. Take this. Buy this EV or this will happen. You're a bad person. Um, you guys can protest peacefully, but you guys can't meet together at all in worship. Um, maybe there are a couple of things. You are essential and you guys are not essential. Right? It's, been, it's been a rough two years. Just a little church history for those that need to know. And if we go all the way back to 2020, there was a little church plant in Pella Communities. You might know that church plant is. And it was right in the middle of the pandemic. We had just started. And there was a decision that had to be made that everyone was making at the time. Do we meet or do we not meet? I'm pretty sure this isn't church planning 101 manual on this one. We had to work through it. The leaders decided that they would sit and they would look at the Word of God. And it didn't take long for them to come to a decision and say, hey, you know what? We are going to worship our God and we are not going to forsake the meeting of the saints. And so they met. Other churches were dealing with the same thing. Other churches that were a little bit, a little bit more popular, potentially, a little bigger, a little known. If you go to the East Coast, larger churches like, um, oh man, now of Capitol Hill Baptist in Washington. They were fighting with their government there. A gentleman, a pastor in Canada, James Coat, was put in jail for meeting. And then a well-known L.A. pastor was fighting with his governor and folks as well. All of them were in battle about meeting. It was a rough, rough two years. Some others did not make that decision. Anyhow, fear is a good motivator. In chapter 2, Daniel has his dream, or interprets the dream, and foretold of a better future kingdom. The king was amazed, and he was humbled by this feat. Or was he? Let's revisit that moment. Chapter 2, verse 46. Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell on his face and paid homage to Daniel and commanded that an offering and incense be, burnt, or be offered up to him. The king answered and said to Daniel, Truly your God is God of gods, and Lord of kings, and a revealer of mystery, for you have been able to reveal this mystery. There was a time of forgetting for him. A time of forgetting. One of the things that we have to realize between the time uh, that that dream took place and the current situation of erecting this statue, there is somewhere between 15 and 20 years that had passed. So when we look at that little white space in between those verses, it was actually pretty long. And during that time, he had already conquered Israel two more times. These were waves. First with Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego coming in, and then a middle, and then this final one where he destroys the temple. And it's done. So one would have to think that if you're the king, and you're being told, well, you're the head, and you're going, I want to be the whole thing, that when you go through and you conquer their God's temple and their people, 
maybe that dream wasn't so real. It seems to be that that's where King Nebuchadnezzar was. He did have a proclivity as anyone to hear what he wanted to hear. And in this situation, there was a time frame that passed, and now he's like, well, I'm going to be that kingdom. There's no other kingdom. We're going to make it all gold. So the scene is set, and the plan is going as designed, at least so it seems. Scene two, the accusation, rules were meant to be broken. Verse eight, therefore, at that time, certain certain Chaldeans came forward and maliciously accused the Jews. They declared to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the trigon, the harp, the bagpipe, and every kind of music shall fall down and worship the golden image. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. There are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, pay you no attention. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Okay, that's a bit shady, right? Here, here all of a sudden, we've got some tattletales sitting in the crowd. They're noticing, oh, those, those guys, like, I mean, how do you know that their heads, they're standing up if your head's not up and you're not looking around, right? These guys are no friends to these guys at all, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They do not like them at all. When I read this, it's kind of interesting because I always kind of picture the scene in The Lord of the Rings you remember in the two towers where Gandalf and the the team come rolling into Rohan and they're coming to see the king there, Theoden, and there's this one official that kind of meets them at the door and I always mess up his name. It's Grima, Grima. You know which one I'm talking about, Wormtongue. This guy is slimy, he's nasty, he's conniving, he's using the same kind kind of phrases, uh, oh, king, live forever type stuff. You know, oh, that's these guys. That's to the T, these guys. They do not like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, probably because they were promoted over them. These are outsiders coming in. And then on top of that, they're not looking out for the king's best interest. They know that the king has a temper issue. We'll see that a little bit more. And so this seemed to be the good time to kind of like bring them in and go, hey, guess what, king? The people you put in charge, they didn't stand. They didn't follow you. So not good friends. Slippery, snaky people. If you notice in verse 8, there's the word malicious, maliciously. It means to eat the pieces of. It's like a tearing and ripping of the flesh and then eating of that. This was not a happy, pretty moment. It was a violent moment. They knew what was going to happen once they brought them before the king. The phrase, simple, also the phrase, they do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. They were trying to flip the script and imply that these men were evil themselves in in contempt of the king and his authority. With this non-compliance of the men, it was a perfect time to set them up. The Chaldeans ensured that the king would know what was going on. Even amongst all those people, and he probably wouldn't have seen three stand up, those little tattletales were watching, and he was going to know, and they were going to pay. Let's read on, verse 13. The Nebuchadnezzar, in furious rage, commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. So they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, 
Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? It was almost as if he couldn't believe what he was hearing. Because he, he, he understood that they had been following him. And, and he knew for this plan to work, you see, there had to be effective leadership. And he understood that he needed demanding, unwavering solidarity and strict adherence to this common goal that he was trying to, to accomplish. These men were at the top of his leadership board. If they didn't follow, everything else would fall apart. But at the same time, it was almost if he didn't believe the, the fork-tongued individuals. He had, they had served him, and they had shown to be loyal. Keep in mind, they also probably had a, a direct access to the king, so they kind of knew what was going on as well. They would have seen what was going on out six miles away. You're not going to miss that being built. He would have known, they would have known something was happening, but yet they still showed up in their clothes, dressed to the nine, and ready to be there for the king if need be. But there's more to come. At the end of the day, the accusations regarding the worship were true. They could not go that far. Verse 15. Now, if you are ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the instruments, I don't know, at this point, you fall down and worship the image that I have made, well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into the burning, fiery furnace. Okay. Pay attention to this next phrase. This is the key. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? You see, this is the exact halfway point of the text. This is right here where we see the pinnacle of the conflict. We're also now seeing what King Nebuchadnezzar's heart was really like. You see, this was about him. It was almost as if he was saying or asking, who is the real God? Who is the real God? Who's the one that has power over life and over death? Who should be worshipped and honored? Whose kingdom will last forever? See, this is the key. This is the linchpin. The tyrant has finally exposed his true motives. This was about turning from their God and worshiping King Neb instead. This is what it was all about from the beginning. This was the point of the image. In the beginning, we might have been like, eh, well, maybe it's just something, you know, whatever. This makes it very clear that the whole purpose was he was at the center of it. Now, I coined a phrase that I missed that I, you need to know earlier. Nobody knows about and You can't really look in a commentary on this, but I looked at this gathering, that his plan as nebo-nationalism. Nebo-nationalism. He's trying to get everyone together to worship and to follow under his new organization. And this is why. Because at the end of the day, he's proclaiming himself above all gods. This is that moment in kind of a, a TV series that you're watching a favorite and you're eating popcorn and it's like, commercial break. And you're like, oh, I gotta wait five more minutes to get back to what's going on? This is a stopping point. A lot of them didn't know, like, what, if they were reading the text, what's next? Most of us in this room have heard the story, so we're kind of like, we know. But imagine you're hearing this for the first time. You would have not known. Let's see, scene three, what happens? The verdict is in. There will be a penalty. Verse 16, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, 
O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God who is... Let's start this over. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hands, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Upon reading this section, uh, one might think that this is a uh, nice reformed thug life moment. Might, if you know what it is, yeah, you're laughing. If not, you'll go read it. You're welcome. Or go see it. You'll, you'll, you'll get it. This moment seems like one of those moments. Who would have thought? started right here. They have a conflict. They meet their tyrant king, and they say their statement. They take their ground, freeze, glasses come down over their face. But honestly, that's more of a cultural thing. We're all for the rebellion, stick-it-to-the-man type thing. But if we look at this, it's really not what it is. It's really not what it is. If you really look and see a little bit further in the text, we see three men that did engage, in dis- in, but they didn't negotiate. They didn't bow to anything. They didn't compromise or find middle ground because they knew Yahweh was sovereign overall. If we look at this a little bit closer, we'll spotlight three words in verse 17 and 18. First word is able, highlighting God's omnipotence, his power. Second is will, showing their confidence in God's ability to act. And in verse 18, but, trusting in his perfect plan to save them if he so chose. Meaning, they don't know what he's going to do, but whatever he does do, it's okay okay. So he's able and he's powerful. He will act upon that power if he chooses to, but if not, that's okay. It's his perfect plan. We're good. No emotion of fear was guiding their answer. It was very matter of fact. They knew and trusted who God was, and they knew that King Neb was not God. So there was no worry, no anxiety. They were confident in their approach with him. They believed the situation had reached a point where there was no room for any action whatsoever. They must have been thinking to themselves, we lived in your homes, we have changed our names, we've ate your food, we've learned your language. However, we have reached a point where we will no longer submit to this request. As they trusted the Lord, and they trusted the Lord, and if he so choose to save them, then that would be the correct response. It was if they believed the word of the Lord in Isaiah 43 when he says, when you pass through the water, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. These three men walked in faith and trusted what God had promised. So there was no need to worry or answer. The decision they made was done. Their God was with them, whether by life or by death, and they were secure in him. That being the case, they would not bow. This did not set well with old Neb. Verse 19. The Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury, 
and the expression of his face was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He ordered the furnace to be heated seven times more than it usually was. This is not a reasonable man. He's not all there. We read his face and his expressions change. Now, you all know this face. You've experienced this face. If you're a child or if you're a parent in this room, you know this face. This is the face before impact. This is, uh uh-oh, I pushed too far. As a child, I've done that as a child of depravity. My parents are in the room. I pushed on the button, and I would see how that would go. And it's like when you start that fuse, it's going to go until it blows. On the other side of it, I'm also a parent, and my kids are in the room. And I have gotten so angry that I have said things that they will laugh and say, that made no sense whatsoever. What did you just say? And I have to think about it and go, yeah, what was I thinking? Anyhow, it happens to the best of us. In today's culture, Nebuchadnezzar would have been put on a meme labeled triggered. You know that meme. (laughs) That would have been him. He would have been canceled for sure. With this face comes irrationality, disorder, chaos. I mean, honestly, if you're going to say, hey, raise this hotter, it makes no sense. You're just going to burn them up, incinerate them. If you really wanted to hurt somebody with the pain of fire and this flaming igloo, you lower the pressure or the, the temperature and you slow roast them. But he's not thinking wise. He's not thinking like that. He's just thinking irrational. All right, let's continue. Verse 20, And he ordered some of his mighty men of his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and to cast them into the burning, fiery furnace. Then these men were bound in their cloaks and their tunics and their hats and their other garments, and they were thrown into the burning, fiery furnace. Because the king's orders were was urgent, and the furnace overheated, the flame... Oh, yeah, the flame of the fire killed those men who took uh, up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound into the fiery furnace. So, all that heat just to burn up his Navy SEALs. Once again, I think we've already determined that this is mindless behavior. The ruler of the greatest kingdom on the planet at the time could not control his own temper, and he hurt innocent people along the way. That's a different conversation. That's a different sermon. But we see this here. His attitude, his anger, hurt those around him. At the same time, three innocent, obedient men were bound and thrown into this fire by his best of best. Verse 24. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up in haste. He declared to his counselor, Did we not cast three men bound into the fire? They answered and said to the king, true, O king, that's a short statement. He answered and said, but I see four men unbound, walking in the midst of the fire, and they're not hurt, and the appearance of the fourth is like the son of the gods. See, the god worshipped by Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego gave a powerful statement in response to the challenge that King Neb had put forth. As a result, the king became uncertain. He became unhinged. It was like he was gaslit. Like, am I seeing the right things here? Like, we we threw, we put three in there, right? Now there's four. Am I going crazy? Now, verse 25 has a lot of debate about it. Some would say that this is an angel that they're seeing in the text, because it's also seen in verse 28. 
Another perspective is this would be the pre-incarnate Christ. Right? Now, for myself, I'm no scholar, um, but I would like to believe that this is Jesus. We can debate about it. That's okay. I'm open to hearing more, but I'll, I'll tell you why. Because I would like to think that King Nebuchadnezzar, when he, when he challenged God, who is the one that's going to remove, what God can take you from my hand? I would like to think that this was Christ going, oh, hold on, I'll, I'll be back. I have to handle this. I'm going there. Right? It's just how I would kind of look at that. It's kind of like when he looks at uh, the, the Tower of Babel, this great tower, and he goes, I've got to come down here and look at this thing. It's, it, Neb thinks he's great. I'm going to challenge the Almighty, and he's here. Right? He places himself as supreme God of all in verse 15. Then this was the answer. Nebuchadnezzar was clearly shocked and awed by what he witnessed. So regardless of what side you're on, this is pretty epic. Scene four, favor, a new decree. Then Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the burning fiery furnace. He declared, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out and come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out from the fire. And the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, and all the king's horses and all the king's men, counselors gathered together and saw the fire. And it had not had any power over their bodies of those men. The hair of their heads was not singed. Their cloaks were not harmed. And no smell of fire had come upon them. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants, who trusted in him and set aside the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except for their own god. Therefore, I make a decree, any people, nation, or language that speaks anything against the god of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb and their houses laid in ruin, for there is no other god who is able to rescue in this way. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon once more. Neb was astonished at what he was experiencing. I can imagine that he was a bit scared because he didn't know who the, first, the fourth person was yet. So I'm sure there was some apprehension calling this individual out. Even though he didn't know exactly who it was, he did know that it, had, it was an individual of supernatural origin. And if you notice at the end of verse 26, he says, servant of the Most High God. Even though he didn't know, he had a really good idea. At that time, an investigation takes place. It's probably a good idea, right? Just experienced a miracle. Something happened here. These guys didn't burn. We should probably check this thing out. So they come out, and they're looking over. They're not burned. They're not singed or even smell like smoke. This was amazing. Now, you all know about smoke. You've been to campfires. It's just not how it works. Uh, as an electrician in my younger years back in Detroit, uh, I would often have to go to burning buildings and areas and do work. And then I would come home and my wife would say, don't come in here. Yeah, put that stuff out in the garage. I don't want the house smelling like smoke. That's the kind of stench that we're talking about. You can't just be around this, let alone in this, and not smell like this. This was an amazing thing for them to even Notice and even recognize and go, wait a minute, 
I should get something, a little singe or something, but there was nothing. This was like the first smokeless fire pit, right? And by the way, if you don't have a smokeless fire pit, you should get one. I got one for my birthday because my wife obviously doesn't like smoke, and they work really well. <laughs> Anyhow, back to the story. Now, the interesting thing here is to take note, the interesting thing to take note of was the bindings, right? The bindings were not there. Now, they could have been consumed in the fire, which would have been interesting too, right? Nothing burns up but those, or this is another reason I believe it was Jesus is that he came and he removed those chains, those bindings that were tied up. To me, it was still a clear response from God as to who was in charge, and it wasn't this arrogant king. It is clear that Neb has not fully understood the situation. He has, um, he has concluded that the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego is the most powerful after careful consideration of the event. However, he still believes that there are other gods. He doesn't tell them there's only one. He allows for more. Neb is yet to realize that Yahweh is the only God. His new decree does not eliminate the other worshipers. Matter of fact, this is the difference between a polytheism, a worship of many gods, and henotheism, which is a worship of many gods, but there's one primary god, the one that's over everything. And this is exactly what King Nebuchadnezzar was doing when he was saying, there's no other gods that can take you out of my hand, making him effectively God, and guess what? I'm the main god over everything. I'm not going to get rid of all the other gods, but know who I am. You see, that's not going to work. Verse 29, if we notice here, he doesn't get rid of all of them. He says the same thing. Therefore, I make a, a decree. Any people, nation, language that speaks against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall, not, shall be torn limb from limb, and their houses laid to ruin, for there is no other God who is able to rescue them in this way. Right. So this is still allowing for the other gods. But if you notice at the end, torn limb from limb, and their houses laid in ruins, this seems to be his like go-to phrase. When I don't like you, I'm going to kill you and burn your house down, burn the village down. We see that back in 2, verse 5. The king answered and said to the Chaldeans, The word from me is firm. If you do not make uh, known to me the dream and its interpretation, what? You shall be torn limb from limb and your houses be laid in ruin. That's his go-to phrase. They knew this was coming. That's why they could, the Chaldeans could play this role. They knew his temperament. I think we've already determined that he's nuts, right? Anyhow, notice the contrast between uh, the beginning of the text and the end of the text. In the beginning of the story, we have the king setting up an image for himself for the people to worship. Not exactly sure who or what we're worshiping at the time. Then in verse 15, we find out that this ultimate God is nonetheless King Neb himself, who stated, who is the God who is able to deliver you out of my hands? And now we, have seen, we see a complete submission and an about-face to, to, uh, to what he had said. In verse 29, there is no other God who is... A oh, sorry, did I read that one already? Yeah, there, 29, there is no other God who is able to rescue in this way. So he goes from, they, no one can take you out of my hand, no God, to there's only this one God. So we have completely shifted from the beginning to the end. Neb aimed to unite the kingdom through his nebo-nationalism and rule indefinitely, but the true king intervened and stepped in. Neb issued a decree forbidding criticism of Yahweh with harsh punishment for all offenders, but he still allowed for pagan gods to be worshipped. 
So, what are we to take away from this? I have three points. They're all regarding faith. First point is, knowing God builds faith. Because they knew God, they knew his commands, they knew his righteous rule, they were able to follow and such. He was with them. We know what he wants. We spent time in your word. What you say goes. We see this in verse 17. If this, so be, or if this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us. They trusted that. Point two, a pattern of trusting God builds faith. You see, the longer you follow and the longer you trust him, the more you're going to see him working through your life. Every step he's there. These men knew that. From the beginning, with the food, to the middle, with the dream, to the current situation, the flame, he was with them the whole time. They knew the stories of Abraham and his son. They knew the story of Pharaoh and Moses and the Exodus. And texts like Isaiah 41.10, where the Lord says, Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. He was with them. It produced a strong trust in the Lord that cannot be broken, even with the threat of death. You can almost call this the ride or die point. There was no compromise whatsoever. Leading us to point three. Knowing God produces faith resulting in action. Resulting in action. Your faith is not hidden. It's not isolated. When all these points align, you will, you will see your faith in action. You will live it out so it will be noticed. If you look, uh, if we see in verse 28, who trust, Neb says this, who trusted in him and set aside the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own god. So there was action there. They knew who this god was. They had faith in him. They trusted him. And it played out. Also in James 2, faith without works is dead. We will have works associated with our faith when we know him, when we trust him, and then we'll see action. But remember, sometimes it doesn't end this way. It doesn't end the way they do. For us, when we do this, it could mean pushback. It can mean persecution. It can mean slander. This could be rough. But we have to remember what Jesus said in John 15, 18, if this world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. And then he continues in 23, whoever hates me hates the Father also. So if you're following him, they hate the Father. They don't just hate you. They hate Christ. They hate us all. So as we walk, there's going to be that persecution and this comforting to know. He's letting us know ahead of time. Many faithful Christians in the same situation fell to the flames unto glory of God. Men such as Polycarp, William Tyndale, John Huss, John Hooper, Nicholas Ridley, and Hugh Latimer. Because of these three points, though, we can be salt. We can be light. We can fight temptation. We are moving from this temporary kingdom of darkness into the eternal glory and never-ending kingdom of Jesus Christ. But this can only happen if you're a believer. This can only happen if you trust in Jesus Christ, your Lord and Savior. If you submit to his authority and you walk 
in his ways and his will. You must choose Christ. You see, he was with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He's with you. He's with us. They knew the stories, and they followed, and it built in their trust. Just as we read this story, and it bolsters us to look and say, we are with him. We should be confident in that. We should not follow or bow to the pagan world around us that lives following the spirit of this age. As the Apostle Paul says in Colossians 2.8, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to the human traditions, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. You see, some, some will say we should be known. We should be known by what we're for and not what we're against. We can have an unhealthy view of that sometimes. We can be too far to the right or we can be too far to the left. But let's be like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Let's be balanced. That's what we should be. Of course, we should be known for our love. We should be known for our compassion. We should be known for our faithfulness and how we follow Christ. And people should see that. But also, be it known to you, O pagan leaders, tyrants, and paper kings. We will not bow to your symbols, kneel to your statues, honor or acknowledge your flags, worldly ideologies, philosophy, and men claiming to be the way. Unlike this world, we will kill our pride rather than celebrate it. We are a people who worship the one true God. Our allegiance is to the eternal kingdom and its king, the redeemer, the mediator, the God-man, Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, do not be a fear. Do not be a fear. Remember what our God and King has told us. Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. We're going to end on this last quote by Bishop Latimer to Dr. Ridley. As the flames approached in October 16, 1555, Latimer looks to Ridley and says this, Be of good cheer, Ridley, and play the man. We shall this day, by God's grace, light up such a candle in England as I trust will never be put out. Let's be that light. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, your word is so wonderful. I pray, Lord, that as we leave here today, that we would walk in confidence as these men did. I would pray, Lord, if there's a, a part of us that is not trusting in you, Lord, that that would be eradicated from our lives, that we would lean into you, we would lean into your word, we would see the good things that you do for us, we would acknowledge it in thanksgiving, Lord, we would be a people that loves and that those around us would see it, and that we give you the glory. We love this text. It's in your precious Son's name we praise you and we thank you. Amen.